hello and welcome to our podcast on global greenwashing issues in the banking sector. I'm Mark Smythe. I'm a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills in Sydney. I'm joined by Ben Rubenstein in New York, Jojo Fan in Hong Kong, and Susanne Gorgi in London. Collectively, we've been helping many of our financial services clients and other clients navigate important ESG issues over the last 12 months, and we wanted to share some of our insights with you on greenwashing in the banking sector. So we know that ESG has always been a critical issue for companies and investors, but there is an increasing demand from investors, stakeholders, activists, Uh, to make ambitious statements on their ESG commitments. For example, in relation to net zero commitments, the makeup of uh, financial services institutions' portfolios, and green or sustainable lending and investing policies. Major financial institutions face particular expectations to announce ambitious policies and targets, and failure to do so can lead to further corporate activism. For example, in Australia, one of our largest banks is facing a shareholder resolution at its AGM calling for further emission reduction targets after publishing its climate plan. At the same time, where companies don't meet these expectations, they face adverse shareholder actions, including votes against the responsible directors or regulatory intervention. Over the last 12 months, we've seen the speed in change in regulation, regulatory focus and litigation shift the landscape. Across the globe, we've seen a rise in regulator and litigation based on ESG disclosures, a real focus by stakeholders and investors in ensuring accuracy in ESG claims, as well as whether ESG commitments made are actually achievable. So allegations of greenwashed or overstated environmental credentials have been the subject of regulator scrutiny and litigation in each of our jurisdictions. Firstly, I'm going to pass to Jojo in Hong Kong to talk about uh, what she's been seeing there. Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, I think just to put things into perspective for everyone, ESG matters can bring real litigation and regulatory risks to different business lines within financial institutions. In an investment bank division of a financial institution, the risk will be more relevant in the due diligence and marketing stage. For example, ESG-related disclosure is often made in prospectuses and offering circulars, and the investment bank owes a duty to conduct adequate due diligence on these disclosures, as they are becoming increasingly important to investors. There are also risks of misrepresentations of ESG-related disclosures in the marketing stage, such as the roadshows for IPO and bond offerings. Going on to wealth management divisions within financial institutions, that ESG risk will be relevant in the marketing process as well. For example, there may be risks of misrepresentations of ESG-related information in marketing materials provided to high net worth individuals such as product brochures, investment ideas, etc. When speaking to some of our clients, we understand that some market participants started to ask their clients to indicate their ESG preferences in their portfolio and compare such preferences with their actual investment products. While this remains to be tested, it is possible that an investor, especially a high net worth individual, may try to argue that the knowledge of the client's ESG preferences for example, through their advisors or ESG questionnaires, 
may give rise to a duty on the part of the financial institution to consider the client's expressed ESG preferences in giving <clears throat> advice or in marketing. The risks are even higher for active advisory accounts. Now, another example is that in the asset management division of a bank, there are similar risks of misrepresentation in the marketing materials. For example, an investor may try to argue that a pension fund owes a duty to adequately disclose uh, and consider ESG risks in those pension funds. The risk may be higher for discretionary funds, although this, again, remains to be tested. Now, that being said, Hong Kong has so far not faced any ESG-related claims, either in the court or in the regulatory space. However, this does not mean ESG matters will not manifest themselves in real litigation or regulatory risks in Hong Kong. In fact, Hong Kong is recently witnessing a significant increase in regulatory pressure to address ESG issues. The Securities and Futures Commission here, or the SFC, has indicated that they are mindful of ESG commitments and are stepping up scrutiny on how the market participants meet their expectations. The CEO of the SFC has highlighted the unique position of Hong Kong in ESG developments in his recent speech. He said, Hong Kong's financial market is where global capital connects with mainland enterprises. So what we do here can have an outsized influence on global developments in green and sustainable finance. Similarly, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is finalizing the supervisory requirements on climate risk management. What is interesting is the acknowledgement of climate change as a source of risk for financial institutions and corporates. So with that note, I'll hand over to Ben, who will talk to you about the situation in the U.S. Thanks, Jojo. Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, so I'll give, I guess, the local flavor in the United States, um, although I think it's important to emphasize that a lot of these trends and predictions uh, and sort of key events you're seeing across jurisdictions, they really are across jurisdictions. Um, so I don't think the U.S. is materially different uh, than maybe the experience you'll hear about on this podcast, whether it's Hong Kong, Australia or the U.K. Um, I think certainly ESG-related investment practices and concerns over potential greenwashing uh, have become and are becoming a priority area for the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, in the last few years. Um, in terms of new regulations, I would say, and this doesn't just apply to banking, but the most significant ESG regulatory development will be the SEC's anticipated proposed climate risk disclosure rules uh, for all public companies. Uh, earlier this year, uh, there was suggestion that those would come out by the end of this year. I think now maybe that's uh, been delayed a bit until early next year, but uh, these are coming. Uh, and these are likely to mandate both qualitative disclosures, so describing corporate strategies for managing climate-related risks, as well as quantitative disclosures, how you measure things like greenhouse gas emissions, both scopes one and two, which are sort of within the control of the company, as well as possibly uh, scope three. Um, and I think the SEC's rulemaking may also lead to industry-specific measures to aid investors in understanding what information stands behind climate and ESG-related statements, uh, and to inform investment choices among green and sustainable funds. So I think the key takeaway from a regulatory perspective in the U.S. is for all public companies, the SEC is likely to provide guidance soon on how you disclose climate-related risks, uh, and then there may be specific rulemaking with respect to specific industries banking uh, included. 
turning to sort of enforcement focus, I think the SEC has established a new climate and ESG task force in its enforcement division. Uh, and this task force has specifically been charged with reviewing disclosures of climate risk, compliance issues, and ESG-related misconduct relating to funds. Uh, a few key focus areas, I think some of these are similar to what JoJo just discussed, portfolio management. Uh, so the SEC will examine whether a firm's policies and practices are consistent with their ESG disclosures and marketing materials. Uh, advertising and marketing is another. The SEC is actively monitoring firms' regulatory filings, websites, and other customer-oriented reports for ESG-related representations. And then compliance programs is a third area. The SEC examinations include review of firms' written policies and their implementation, including the effectiveness of compliance oversight programs in practice. Uh, and I would say this is not just sort of uh, rhetoric from the SEC. Uh, it's currently investigating a major European bank's asset management wing following whistleblower allegations uh, that the firm had overstated the use of ESG-related criteria in the management of approximately $1 trillion in funds and provided inaccurate information about these funds to investors. So that's kind of a quick overview in the U.S. of some of the regulatory developments uh, swinging over to litigation. Um, we've seen lots of greenwashing litigation in the U.S. for several years now. Um, and, and really sort of the focus area thus far is not the banking sector. It's the consumer products uh, sphere where greenwashing class actions have already been around for a number of years and are on the rise. These could be based on labeling like green, eco-friendly, 100 percent recyclable, et cetera. Uh, and the lawsuits allege that these types of statements are either false, misleading, or exaggerated claims that lack scientific substantiation. Uh, in the U.S., we've seen similar greenwashing suits pursued against energy majors, uh, mostly by state attorneys general, invoking the same types of state consumer protection laws in arguing that these companies have greenwashed or otherwise misrepresented to consumers uh, their ESG bona fides, including commitment to energy transition. Uh, while the financial sector has yet to see litigation at scale like these other sectors have, uh, there is certainly a risk of similar litigation uh, with respect, for example, to financial products and investments that are marketed as ESG. Um, and then the final point I'll make, uh, perhaps more of a uh, commercial trend than a legal one, uh, is increasing pressure on the investor community to reduce fossil fuel related funding either at the particular project level uh, or at the corporate level. Uh, indeed, many proponents of a more rapid reduction in emissions emphasize the important role financial capital plays in reducing use of fossil fuels and increasing investment in renewable forms of energy. Uh, and these commercial pressures also create legal risk insofar as a bank's own ESG disclosures may be argued to be false, misleading, or exaggerated compared to the realities of the bank's lending practice. So that's a, a quick overview of uh, ESG risk, greenwashing risk in the banking sector in the U.S. And I think I will hand back over to Mark, who will discuss uh, perspective in Australia. That, thanks a lot, Ben. Uh, really similar themes uh, down here in Australia to those that you just mentioned. So in particular, really beginning to see a spread of regulatory focus and litigation focus from what was previously in the energy and resources sector, in the consumer sector, 
now very much uh, into the banking and financial services sector. So on, on the regulatory side, we've seen a, a real focus from ASIC on the need for transparency and financial disclosures on uh, ESG risks generally, but in particular in relation to climate change risks. Uh, and we've also seen actions by investors uh, seeking disclosure of documents, scrutinising compliance with ESG trends. So uh, ASIC have um, announced various uh, investigations and regulatory scrutiny of financial services institutions and issuers' disclosure statements. So, for example, uh, in, in July of this year, ASIC announced a review of managed and superannuation funds to determine uh, whether or not their financial product and investment strategies were as, as green or as ESG-focused uh, as claimed. Uh, ASIC has also stated publicly that they've written to several companies uh, in relation to greenwashing issues and also in the, in the context of IPOs, uh, corrected or, or sought corrections in relation to a number of statements that might otherwise have led to greenwashing individuals. Separately, a number of individual members have commenced court proceedings against financial institutions in Australia, alleging that investments in emissions-intensive projects were either not properly subject to ESG commitments that those financial institutions had agreed to or consistent with uh, their climate change-related frameworks, and these claims have included requirements uh, on those financial uh, institutions to disclose documents to shareholders in relation to their ESG strategies. I think another litigation trend that we've seen here is claims challenging whether or not uh, commitments to ESG strategies and in particular in the climate change context uh, have, have been operationalised. So in particular in Australia, we've seen a number of claims brought against companies for their ESG commitments and in particular in relation to net zero targets. So in Australia, such claims are founded on alleged breaches of misleading or deceptive conduct provisions, breaches of disclosure requirements and or uh, general financial services obligations. So issues might be raised, for example, in relation to announcements on climate targets, on the setting of investment strategies, for example, in relation to sustainable lending practices, and also in, in relation to participation in emissions-intensive transactions arising from those commitments. So th there's been a number of significant pieces of litigation commenced here. These allegations may arise where there's been a lag, if you like, in between the commitments between corporates and the operationalization of those strategies. It remains to be seen whether or not those proceedings will be successful, but certainly the trends down under in Australia are similar to those that Ben has just outlined in the US. We'll move now to consider developments in London, and I'll pass over to Susan. Thanks very much, Mark, and Ben and Jojo. Um, much like Hong Kong, we get to see any active greenwashing litigation or regulatory enforcement action at scale in the UK. And as with the US, Australia and Hong Kong, we in the UK are seeing increased pressure from investors, the media, government and regulators in the greenwashing space. Uh, as 
has been discussed already on this uh, podcast, there is an increasing commercial push for decision-useful disclosures to investors and companies' published announcements. In addition to that commercial pressure, the UK is rolling out legislative changes on a staggered basis to require companies to make climate risk-related disclosures in their periodic published information. So for disclosures published from January 2022, for premium listed companies, the UK listing rules have been expanded to capture on a comply or explain basis the company's alignment with the TCFD framework. For those of you who are not familiar with TCFD, TCFD stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. The TCFD was established by the G20 Financial Stability Board in 2015 to develop high-level principles for consistent, clear and efficient climate-related disclosures. The recommendations were initially set out on a voluntary framework uh, for the disclosure of climate-related financial risks, and they were endorsed by over a thousand organisations and multiple governments, including the UK. While the listing rule developments are currently limited in application to premium listed companies, there have been a flurry of discussion papers and consultation papers and a roadmap towards mandatory reporting in this space. Most recently, the FCA confirmed its intention to ensure that disclosures for standard listed companies would include TCFD aligned statements from 2023. Looking at what that's going to mean from a regulatory enforcement perspective, we're still very much at the learning stages. And when you look at the commentary from the FCA, there is an acceptance by the UK regulator that perfection is the enemy of the good and more progress is required in terms of getting climate related disclosures produced and published, if not perfected. So there was a proposal in the FCA's recent primary markets bulletin in mid-November this year for a further technical note to give additional guidance on disclosure expectations. In its bulletin, they also the FCA also explained that the FRC would perform a significant role in the context of monitoring disclosure statements to the market in terms of clarifying and corrective steps, which are very much based on communication with the relevant companies. However, the note from the FCA was also very clear that failure to make necessary statements at all would be addressed by the FCA. So while the FCA has made it clear that they will take a developing line in the context of regulatory enforcement and monitoring, this approach is likely to be time limited and may well have developed before any related securities litigation is brought. As mentioned by Mark and Ben, this focuses the attention on the risk for such disclosures being misleading, exaggerated or containing emissions, potentially without the benefit of that point in time understanding of where we are in the regulatory cycle in relation to climate change and greenwashing understanding. In the product space, in November this year, the FCA published a discussion paper relating to sustainable disclosure requirements and investment labels. Banks will be familiar with regulatory and litigation risks relating to products, so mis-selling, for example. Applying a green or climate-related lens pulls into sharp focus what I was just describing, which is where we are in that cycle. It's not so much a case of moving the goalposts, but building them. So a consultation on investment labels has been planned for Q222. And I understand that steps have already been taken on the continent in France and with the BaFin consultations in Germany earlier this year. More generally, there have been developments regarding taxonomies to describe sustainability so that we all know what green means. While significant steps have been taken in the EU towards an EU taxonomy, there remain details to be worked through via secondary legislation. And in the UK, post-Brexit, 
the UK will generate its own UK taxonomy, which is intended to be broadly based on the EU taxonomy, but may have national divergences. In the fund space, earlier this year, the FCA wrote a letter to the AFM chairs to raise concerns about the standards of the applications received by the regulator for ESG and green funds, many of which the regulator made very clear had fallen short of regulatory expectations. The regulator included practical guidance around fund considerations when making applications, and I'll pick up on some of those more generally shortly. In terms of final thoughts, this podcast has picked up on the developing trends from the States, from Australia, from Hong Kong, and from the UK. And what's clear is that there is a drive and similar themes emerging from across the globe. However, you cannot avoid the fact that a bank is a global entity and will have to navigate developments in the regulatory and legislative spheres across each different jurisdiction that it has products and businesses in. While each jurisdiction is continuing to develop, it's worth thinking about the drive towards harmonisation globally. I mentioned the TCFD framework earlier, and that's being adopted in multiple jurisdictions as a go-to framework for the purposes of corporate disclosures. However, the more interesting development on the harmonisation space is the announcement by the IFRS at COP26 of the ISSB, which I think is a welcome move towards international harmonisation, albeit perhaps more in hope than in practice. While those goalposts are being built and while there is no clear harmonisation, I thought I'd close out with some high level thoughts and practical tips for consideration in the context of climate related disclosures and greenwashing. First things first, tell the truth. In terms of publications and disclosures and marketing materials, be clear. If there is a tension between a public relations angle and factual accuracy, try and resist the temptation to succumb to PR. Consider whether there are any internal reviews or escalated management information which suggests that the position understood internally within the bank is different from what is being told in the market. Be really aware of that. Include assumptions and qualifications in the disclosures that you make. What judgments or interpretations have been applied in analysing the data? Use wording which is factually accurate as to the limitations and challenges that have been faced, but which doesn't give the impression of disclaiming the firm's responsibility for its disclosures and climate change strategy. It's a fine balance, but it's important to give it due consideration. Be clear, it's a complex area to navigate, but avoid acronyms, jargon, and the like. Translate disclosures into plain English, which can be understood by a lay investor. On the technical standards, there has been a great focus in the UK and in Europe on the adequacy of data to base disclosures on. It remains a nascent area. Acknowledging inadequacies of data and dependencies on data is important. How has that data been sourced? Is it dependent on third parties? If you're marketing funds, for example, has there been a dependency on published information of companies invested in? Are you using proxy data or other workarounds? It's a particularly difficult point for global operations or funds which invest across different jurisdictions and sectors because some sectors and some jurisdictions are far ahead while others are very much lagging behind. So it's important that there is a clear understanding and clear transparency when making disclosures. And finally, third parties. Invest in or buy in the technical expertise In the UK, the regulators have encouraged the idea of climate risk and ESG awareness being a golden thread which runs through the business. 
I think that we're all comfortable with the idea that ESG and climate change is no longer a CSR matter. But the focus is not just in the sustainable loans team or in the ESG or green funds team in the bank. The engagement with an understanding of ESG and climate risk issues now needs to pervade throughout the bank. Whether it's the capital markets team being aware of climate risk in the context of advisory work and when providing underwriting services, or the ops team having a sense of the bank's own global impact and risks to its business. The scope is broad and the need for upskilling is real. And with that, I'm going to thank Ben, Mark and Jojo. Uh, and thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.